The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And welcome. Uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be standing up here to preach the word this morning. And I love that we get to do this each week, that we get to gather together and be reminded of the powerful truth that unites us together. Um, and to, to accomplish that here at Holy Cross, we tell the story of God revealed to us by his grace that God is holy and that we have sinned, that Jesus saves us and blesses us to be a blessing. And if you've been with us for any period of time, even if you joined last week, I'm hoping that that's a repetitive phrase that you've heard. Not repetitive in some monotonous way, but in the way that only God can make it. It's, it's repetitive, but it's refreshing. It's unchanging, it's steady, and it's life-giving. And so what we seek to do here is ultimately tell God's story each week, each time that we gather together so that we could magnify God's glory, live as his people, and to engage God's mission. And I think I've been here about eight, eight going on nine months now, so I think I've got the company line down. Um, but it's so much more than just a tagline or something that we just say or put on the top of our doors. But it's really the core foundation for all Christians regardless of cultural, social, economical backgrounds. So it really is a joy and a privilege to be able to tell that story and to be reminded of God's goodness together as we've gathered. Um, and if you've been with us for about two months now, we've been going through the, first, uh, the book of 1 Samuel together, seeing the rejection of God's kingship over the people of Israel, by the people of Israel, and seeing God's, God's work in powerful ways in the midst of their people's desire to choose something other than him, to choose personal freedom. And we open with the story of Hannah, Elkanah, Panina, and the birth of Samuel. We've seen Eli and his sons. We saw the Israelites with the ark and then asking for a king like the other nations, kind of just, just flying through 1 Samuel here. And we heard about Saul coming into kingship and then messing it all up. And so it feels like we've gone through centuries of biblical history with all these stories, but they all take place in a relatively short time frame, about 70, 80 years or so, and so many stories and so many failures in these stories. And it seems that the people keep choosing the wrong thing. And I want to talk about choices, because choices are critical in our understanding and our study of 1 Samuel, as we've seen a number of choices take place and the consequences of some of these choices that lead to some catastrophic events. I mean, I've mentioned a few, but for one, to highlight a few, um, Israel chose the ark instead of choosing God. Remember? They were fighting the Philistines. They were in battle and things weren't going so well. And so instead of crying out to God and depending on him, they said, hey, why don't we march out this ark of the covenant as some sort of trophy and so they're eventually defeated and the ark is captured. Similarly, Israel chose a king like the other nations rather than submit to God's kingship over them. And we're continuing to see how that unfolds as we go through 1 Samuel. But, you know, to be fair, God did tell them exactly how it would unfold. So what we're left with is seeing that this doesn't seem to be exactly the example, model example for wise decision making. And we see that Samuel here in our text today has a choice to make as well. 
after Saul's string of failures and disappointment and disobedience to God, God has rejected him as king and Samuel's left grieving at the end of chapter 15 over what took place. So let's dive into our passage as we open our ears and our hearts for the Lord to speak. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, I come, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came... He looked on Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. That is the word of God for us this morning. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I don't do a whole lot of shopping for myself. I really only like to spend money on a few small things. Food being a big part of that, if you follow me on Instagram, as you may know. And so it's rare that I actually step into a store to spend time to shop and choose things out. And when I do, I end up at Marshall's or TJ Maxx. Those are kind of my stores. Bargain hunting for clothes that look decent but are pretty cheap. Um, It's a delicate balance I'm trying to strike between semi-up-to-date fashion and price, and I call that value. Trying to optimize the dollars I spent on a certain product that's supposed to be worth more to say to myself, wow, this, this is valuable to me. And so after scrambling through all the different racks and all the different sizes, finally finding maybe one, maybe two, one, two that I like, 
that happened to be also in my size. I stumble upon a shirt that's once priced at $89.99, marked down to $15.99, and say, wow, this is valuable to me. I deem this shirt worthy. I deem this to be valuable, worthy of my time, worthy of purchase, worthy of a place in my closet and on my body. And not everyone may be bargain hunters here, but we make choices this way. We make choices based on our standards of what seems good, what appears to be good for us, what seems worthy of our time, of our money, of our thought, of our devotion, and so on. And so can you imagine the choice that Samuel has to make here? Granted, God is ultimately making the choice for him, but we see in the text that he processed it in the similar line of thinking initially. And so God uses Samuel to make God's choice, his choice. And we see that our text is a secret anointing ceremony, similar to what you see in chapter 10 with Saul, where Samuel pours oil on David's head as an anointing by God, making visible the choice that God is making for David to be king over Israel. And so I want to just take a look at the choice that God has made rather than our choices, rather than the choice that Samuel would have made. And as we look at God's anointing of David, we see a few traits of the anointing that points to who God is and how he operates. And that God is, God's anointing is definitively sovereign and it's beyond the wisdom of man and it is dangerous. And so the first thing I want to jump into is that God's anointing is definitively sovereign. What do I mean by that phrasing? It's inherently redundant, but it's also intentional to phrase it that way because we often like to limit God's sovereignty as if his, his sovereignty is active in the grand scheme of things when we think about the birds in the sky or the fish in the sea. We're also really good at pointing out God's sovereignty over other people's lives and saying, you know, when people are going through difficult times or good times, we say, hey, you know, God is sovereign over this. Don't worry. But when it comes to our own circumstances, good or bad, we fail to acknowledge his fingerprints on the workings of our daily life. So I want to just make it clear that God is definitively sovereign in that he is absolutely, authoritatively, incomparably sovereign. And just as we fail to see that in our lives, Samuel does too. The previous chapter, as we mentioned, it ends with Samuel grieving over what took place. And what took place is Saul is rejected by God as king for his failures and for his unrepentant heart. And Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is brutally executed by Samuel. And Samuel, after all of that takes place, he's emotionally burdened with grief from all of that. And Try to understand a little bit of his grief here. I mean, Saul, Saul, he was supposed to be the chosen one. He was tall, handsome, strong, powerful in battle. He won battles, and to Samuel, Saul was supposed to be the king. He was made to be a king. He looked like a king, and so Samuel had placed his hope in that, and he's grieving as this is becoming undone. And so God addresses Samuel's grief. He doesn't just let it be, but he says to him, how long will you grieve over Saul? Notice that 
he doesn't ask that question to Saul, I mean to Samuel, but it's a rhetorical question. How long will you grieve over Saul? Because God is saying, I have rejected him. God himself has rejected Saul and has made this decision. Samuel was the means of carrying out that action, but God is telling Samuel, this was me, this was my doing. God is taking responsibility for what took place, what unfolded with Saul, because it was entirely God's action. But he doesn't just leave it there. It gets better. He doesn't really leave space for Samuel to respond. He just continues on. And he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And you say, why is that better? He just kind of ignores what Samuel's going through. But it is better because in one stroke, God is relieving Samuel from the grief that he was experiencing. His grief that came from placing a hope in the wrong king. His grief that, that was coming from placing hope in man rather than God. And God takes, away, takes that away, takes that grief away and says, this was my doing, not yours. And he also says, see, look, I'm giving you instruction on what to do next because I have a plan that's in action. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so he is giving a plan to Samuel of what's going to unfold. I mean, how amazing is that, that in one stroke he's able to accomplish that. And I hope that that fills us with hope, not just for Samuel, but for us today right here. Because we think of the seasons of life when we face difficulty and trial. I mean, looking at Samuel's life, I would imagine that this was the pinnacle for his quote-unquote career to install the first king of Israel and to bring about the kingdom that was promised so long ago as the Israelites faced all the various trials to get to that point. And Samuel is at the top seeing a king rule over Israel, a strong, tall, mighty, powerful king. And so for us, it might not look like that. Our difficulties may be work-related or finance-related, health, relationships, parenting, any number of things that we can be vulnerable to. And maybe we can juggle one difficulty. Maybe we can juggle two or three. But th when, the, when that number starts climbing and things prove to be difficult and we unravel, and what do we turn to? It's... I think this passage is showing us that God is in action and God is sovereign over Samuel's grief. And he is telling them that we need to know this as well, that we are to trust and know that when these things fall apart in our lives, that God is still in control, that he is faithful to his promises, and that God is still a sovereign God who is ultimately working towards our good and his glory. And that's the sort of overwhelming relief that God is able to give to Samuel. He tells him, I have provided for myself a king. I have a plan that is already in motion, and I just need you to be a participant in it. And so he instructs Samuel to anoint the one that God chooses. And I think that in itself is such a blessing as well, because we see that Samuel, too, has his flaws. And if it were up to Samuel, he'd probably choose between the rock or, the Ar or Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
or maybe Yao Ming if it's left up to purely just a height factor. But God tells Samuel, I have provided for myself a king, and you're going to anoint the one that I choose. God is making that decision for him, and this is a good thing for Samuel. It's a good thing for the Israelites, and it's, it's a good thing for us. Because the next point is that God's anointing is beyond the wisdom of man. And there's a surprise factor because, because he is beyond our wisdom that we don't expect. I mean, remember we talked about Samuel's hope in the promise that Saul seemed to show as a king because he was tall and he was mighty in battle and he was strong. And so he sees the oldest son, Eliab, and he's, he, he thought, surely this is the one, surely. And surely he wasn't. Their father, Jesse, makes all seven of them pass before Samuel, and surely it was none of them that the Lord had chosen. And we also have to address Jesse here, because we have many fathers in this room, and this is a guy who we're told he has seven sons plus David, so eight sons, and yet when he attends this important sacrifice that this, this, this person that has been chosen by God to, to carry this out, he has judged Israel for a long time now, and, and Samuel, when he comes, he is inviting Jesse and his family personally, and he chooses to just leave behind a child. And so it's just a strange dynamic at play there. And not only Jesse, but Samuel isn't too far off the way that he goes into it. He's, to be fair, he's following tradition, picking the oldest, the tallest, the strongest that were most often placed into these positions. But he goes down the line, and I can kind of imagine a lineup where you're going down by height, and as time is passing and as sons are coming up and he's just saying where where is it god like they're getting smaller and smaller and shorter and shorter um who who is it going to be and can you just imagine what was running through his mind when he saw david the last one we're told that david's the youngest and some of your footnotes should include that he's it carries the meaning of him being the smallest and he was ruddy, which implied that he was a little bit lighter skinned in comparison to the others, which just meant that he stuck out. And he was also beautiful. Well, he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. So he still checked off a few boxes that Samuel had in mind. But to be the youngest and the smallest, I can't relate with that because I'm the oldest and I reached this height in the fifth grade. And so I was the biggest for a few years there. So I don't have this, I don't, I don't relate with it at all. But from what I hear, it's a disadvantage, especially with a household with eight sons. I mean, wow. But God is reorienting Samuel and what he's supposed to look for. Not the outer appearance, but in verse 7, he points Samuel to look at the inward appearance that God is seeing that. He says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And so you might look at Eliab or Abinadab or Shema or any of these other older, taller, bigger, stronger brothers and say, this guy looks like a king. That's the mistake that Samuel made. That's the mistake that I think I would have made in that position. But God is saying, no, I look deeper than just his appearance or his stature. I look at his heart. And sometimes we try to make sense of God's logic and how he comes to a certain decision. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. But this one, I think it makes complete sense. Because God is able to see and discern what is in their heart. And so God's wisdom, part of it is that he knows things about people. He knows things about us, ourselves, that we could not even know or think of. And Samuel doesn't have God's wisdom, but he's able to realize that God's wisdom clearly surpasses his own wisdom, and he trusts in how God is leading. And the last point I want to get to is that God's anointing is dangerous. And this is an odd one, kind of talks about, we kind of talked about how God is, God's anointing is sovereign and wise, but we get to the last one, and it's, it's, kind of sticks out on its own. But it does need to be pointed out because all the events that we see in our passage taking place is taking place in somewhat of a secret. And I say somewhat because God did tell Saul that the kingdom of Israel was torn away from him and that someone better was going to be king. So this was sort of expected. But to have a king in place who knew that a replacement was coming, a replacement was on the way, I mean, I think Saul would definitely be on edge. And Samuel's uh, worried because of that. And in verse 2, he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And so even to carry out this anointing, there is danger present, and God takes measures to protect him. He devises a plan for Samuel to sacrifice a heifer in Bethlehem, using that time to invite Jesse's family And so Samuel was fearful of Saul, but God addresses that danger there. But there's not just danger in Samuel's circumstance, but also in David's circumstance as well. I mean, just picture that scene where he's standing before his brothers, and you can imagine as he's the last one brought in before Samuel, and all of them are remaining standing until he arrives there. And so everyone's just waiting for him, Waiting, for, waiting to see who Samuel is going to anoint. And it, it falls on this young, small child. And think of the danger that this places him in. You might not think of it at that moment immediately, but to be in front of the whole group that counted him out, to be, to be able to stand before his father that didn't include him in this ceremony that was taking place, his brothers that all passed before Samuel and went through the same thing and were rejected. And so to stand before them and to be anointed before them and all the other other witnesses that may have been present, none of them thought that it was going to be this small, young boy that's anointed by God. And certainly we know that Eliab doesn't take it well because you'll see in the next chapter when we get to it that he has some anger and resentment towards his little brother. And so David's anointing is definitely, it is, it is a blessing of God on him. 
But as it says in verse 13, when it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That anointing is also not just a blessing, but it's an invitation for a challenge. That God's anointing of the Spirit on David is severe in both its blessings and its challenges. Because it invites the opposition. It invites opposition from the evil one. Because we know that in David's life, going forward from here, before this, he was tending sheep. He was keeping the sheep. But this anointing comes. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And there is constant challenge in his life going forth from there. He deals with envy and anger. He deals with Saul plotting against him numerous times. He's hunted and he's betrayed. He's living in hiding, living in exile. Just all the circumstances that drive him to the very edge. And we know this to be true, not just from the historical accounts, but through David's expressions of emotions and worship, through the book of Psalms, just seeing some of the Psalms that express his lament, his crying out to God. He is seeking peace. He is seeking rest. He is seeking healing and, and rescuing. And in fact, he does go from just being a boy who tended sheep to one that has to face all these challenges. I have a friend who's pastoring at a church in Camden, New Jersey. And if you've heard that city, it's a city that's repeatedly ranked one of the most dangerous cities in the, in the country uh, based on just violent crime rate. And he half-jokingly said one time that he and his pastors, he and other pastors in town would carry around the Bible, make it known that they were pastors because that acted as their bulletproof vest, that acted as their protection because people were just less prone to attack a minister. And fortunately, crime rates in that city has gone down drastically over the last few years. But for him, it was a real way of protecting himself. And oftentimes, we see our, our, our blessing from God, our anointing from God, David's anointing, as simply just blessing, simply as blanket protection. Oh, God is with me. Have no fear. And all that is true. But God's anointing is not only that. It is protection for our hearts and our souls that we be secure in him. But it simultaneously is a threat to the work of the devil. Satan is actively working to unravel God's plan through God's people. And when God is working in our lives, you can expect the evil one to be at work as well. I mean, we see, in, see this in the scripture as God worked in Adam and Eve in the garden, creating them, introducing them to the order of the world that he has just created. Satan, too, was working there, deceiving them, turning them away from God. And we see our character David as God makes his covenant with David. David pledges to build a house, and God says, I will build you a kingdom. Satan, too, was working there, sowing envy into David's heart. And just a few short years later, in the scripture, it's a few chapters later, that David falls for Bathsheba. And as God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem his people once and for all, Satan, too, was working there, tempting our Lord from start to finish. 
And Jesus was the only one from these examples that's faithful to say, not my will, but yours be done. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's been a theme that we could trace throughout our studies in 1 Samuel. And it's apparent here too, that he looks on the heart rather than the outward appearance. David, the choice of God's anointing, the king for Israel that God has provided for himself is not what we would have picked. It's not what Samuel was going to pick initially. And we see that God's anointing is above us. It's sovereign and it is wise. It's good because David is better than Saul as it was promised to Saul. And we see that Saul's story begins with his description as a tall handsome man. I've mentioned that description a couple times already. In the English word, we have it translated as tall because it describes his physical stature, and that's what it does. But it also carries another connotation that there is a proudness to it, a level of pride that comes from that sense of tall. And, I mean, we just said it. What's been the key theme through Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 and throughout the whole book is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and so to the listeners of First Samuel, just hearing the progression, hearing Hannah's prayer, hearing those words, and then seeing Saul described as that should be alarm bells. And we see David, clear contrast to, what, to who Saul was as someone that was the youngest, the smallest in stature, so much so that he wasn't even considered by his own father as a possible candidate for this anointing. And not only is Saul described this way and David described this way, but the first scene that we see Saul, we see him searching for his father's lost donkeys. So let me go back to that and read that passage real quick. It comes from 1 Samuel 9. He says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they, when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. What a strange passage. I mean, we went over that a couple of weeks ago, but what a strange passage. I mean, did you guys find that in any of your devotional books this week? Talking about, oh, he looked here, couldn't find them. He looked there, and he couldn't find them. You know what? Let's just go back home because I think my dad might be worried about me, and so he might not care about the donkey so much. And yet the author spends three verses writing about Saul's donkey-finding adventure and he easily, the author could have easily just said, Saul went out to find his father's donkeys and couldn't find them. The end. That could have been it. And so there's an emphasis there of Saul's character. And we see in contrast how we're introduced to David in verse 11 of our text. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
And remember, Samuel came into this town to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. Specifically invited Jesse and his family, who, who then brings all of his sons, but David, and attends this rare event. And while David is off tending to the sheep, the author is making a clear comparison between the king that God makes for Israel because of their demand and the king that God has provided for himself. God is rejecting the king who couldn't find his goats and who did not walk in obedience to him. And God is anointing the king who stayed behind to keep the sheep, who strives after God's own heart as he is described. As we will see David's life unfold throughout the scriptures. Just as a side tangent, slightly, there's a funny thing about sheep, because whenever the Bible talks about sheep and shepherds, I think it usually is addressing something about us, something about ourselves. Because sheep are really stupid. They're not intelligent. And I read an article a while back that I just can't get out of my head. And it's about a herd of sheep in Turkey committing mass suicide, not because they're running from a predator off the hill or anything, but simply because one less than intelligent sheep decided to jump off a cliff. And so 1,500 of them followed. Fortunately, not all of them died because the first 400 kind of cushioned the blow. <laughs> um, and so a large majority of them survived. And that's not to make light of such tragic deaths and probably the financial losses for those farmers. But we often feel like we're better than that, at least. But in fact, left to our sin, left to ourselves, we're no better than those sheep. Not knowing where to go, following anything and everything, living day by day with no particular hope of anything greater than death. We are all sheep. It's such a fitting metaphor. And the people of Israel were sheep because they decided for themselves, they're going to go this way, they're going to go that way, they're going to do this and that. Oh, but now things aren't going well. Maybe this isn't what we're supposed to do. They're led astray and they continue in this cycle of wrongdoing and mistakes and failures until God intervenes. I mean, could you imagine the entire Old Testament without God intervening every now and then to say, hey, remember that covenant that I made with you. Remember that I told you, you will be my people and I will be your God. This whole dynamic that we have here, remember that? I'm still here. And David too, David too is a sheep. He's the shepherd king over all of Israel, but he humbles himself to the Lord. And we see that he embraces the sheepness that we have in ourselves because he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Not only 
do we recognize these words from Psalm 23 to be so humble and gentle? But we know that David goes into some stupid, sheep-like situations. And as he goes into these situations, he recognizes his flaws. And it's this devoted man of God who's anointed by God that also reveals some flaws and deficiencies. And so he is left to cry out to the Lord and trust in God in his leading, in his sovereignty and his wisdom. And so the goal for us isn't to seek this kind of anointing that David received. Our aim as sons and daughters of God is not to strive to be the best version of ourselves, as the world might tell us, but it really is to embrace a posture of humility, to really become the daughter or the son that God has created you to be, of someone that's willing to embrace our own sheep-likeness, our own failures and our deficiencies before God, to depend on Him as our Good Shepherd, utterly and completely. So our aim is to recognize the one that has been anointed, one that will not lead us astray, one that will not be led astray himself, one that was tempted, mocked, scorned, beaten, and shamed, and yet was faithful to the Father and was obedient to the very point of death, even death on a cross. One who died the death that we could not die, and one who was raised to life because death could not hold him. And he's, he's the one that's conquered the territory of war on sin and death, and he triumphs over sin and death and sits at the right hand of God. Jesus is the good shepherd who calls us his sheep, and leads us to green pastures and rest. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules over all things. And Jesus is the perfect shepherd king who leads us with gentleness, with truth and power. And so we recognize that our anointing isn't this sort of special anointing that David received. Our anointing isn't to become something better version of ourselves. Our anointing comes from Christ and Christ alone. He gives us his spirit to be our helper so that we could know him and love him and follow him. So we look to Christ who is able to do far more than we could ever imagine. And we trust that he is the shepherd king anointed by the father that in this he's definitively sovereign, infinitely wise beyond our wisdom and able to face the dangers of the cross of sin and of death that we could not, and that he could come out victorious in his resurrection and new life. Let's pray together.